Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. This month we delve into a niche development sector, hospitality. Joining me for this episode is my guest, Scott Brown, who is the co-founder of Housemade Hospitality. Scott's history building and developing hospitality brands and venues spans over two decades across New Zealand and Australia. His venues are synonymous with the utmost in quality of both the food and beverage they serve, the service they provide, and the detail and design of their spaces. You only have to look at the main building out of which they operate here in Sydney, Hinchcliffe House, to know what I'm talking about. Their main venue is also where my connection and interest in interviewing Scott come into play. Hinchcliffe House is a beautifully restored wool store and is one of the five buildings that make up the key quarter Loftus Lane Precinct developed by AMP Capital in Sydney's Circular Quay. I was fortunate enough to be the architectural precinct lead for Loftus Lane during my time at SJB, so this project is very, very close to my heart. When I found out that Housemaid Hospitality had taken out the entire four floors of Hinchcliffe, my mind went into overdrive. How do these people do it? How did they start? What rules and lessons have they learned over time to give them the confidence to take on projects like this and to make them succeed? Well, that's exactly what Scott and I get into in the upcoming conversation. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Scott Brown. Scott, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with me today. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. I reckon we've got a pretty exciting conversation on our hands today. We get to talk about your stories and experiences running a couple of hospitality brands. The first one being back in New Zealand, the, the other one being the one that you're currently engaged in in Australia. And we also get to talk about the development of real estate in the context of hospitality. So it's pretty interesting, but also pretty niche. First thing I'd like to do is to ask you a couple of brief questions to paint a picture of you for our audience. So if you can tell me where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in the North Shore of Sydney and I actually went to school there and school was the beautiful Barker College up in Hornsby. What did you want to study after school? Not really focused on on the career at that stage. The last couple of years of school, I was uh, working quite hard and had a couple of side hustles and playing a lot of sport, enjoying life. Finished the HSC eventually and looking at opportunities and where I'd go next. A friend of ours um, suggested doing a a traineeship with the Sheraton Group. And so I applied for that. Sure enough, got in and started off my hotel career. Did you anticipate getting into hospitality or was it just something that just took a gamble? Yeah, it just took a gamble. I'd always watched my parents entertain and was around my mother in the kitchen and my father around the alcohol. So I guess that kind of like led me down that path for a little while. So I was always interested in food and beverage from a very early age. And I enjoyed that type of lifestyle. And when the opportunity for the hotel came up, I thought, geez, that's a great idea. Can I just ask, before we step down into the traineeship at Sheraton, you mentioned a couple of side hustles as well. 
I started off um, mowing neighbours' lawns when I was 10, 11 or 12 or something for $10, $15. So I ended up doing that for six, seven, eight years and grew that to maybe six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 lawns on a weekly, fortnightly basis. So that was a good little side hustle that I could fit into school and um, sports and training for sports and all that type of thing. And I actually uh, started work out at the race course as well. On Saturdays and public holidays and school holidays, I was involved in the, the races out at uh, the Sydney Metropolitan Tracks, which is... A great experience being a young boy getting out to all the different tracks around Sydney and seeing all the, the highs and the lows of racing and, and just experiencing the different parts of Sydney it opened my eyes up to the, the wider Sydney lifestyle. Didn't really have much time for school, unfortunately, but managed to fit that one in as well. So liked, obviously, to be kept busy and, and to learning new things and to broaden my horizons from an early age. So I guess that's just carried through in my working life as well. Let's get back into Sheraton. You have to go to traineeship there and then how did that evolve? What were you involved in? So we did uh, off-site training about all facets of the hotel industry and then we were seconded to a particular hotel for our on-the-job training. Two years from where to go and we actually went to every single department of the hotel tried to understand from an operational point of view about how the departments work with each other and how they should run. And I was lucky the hotel that I was at was quite progressive. We had some very forward thinking managers and leaders in that hotel. You know, we tried new things that weren't typically done in hotels back in the early 90s. I just enjoyed being part of those processes. Enjoyed my time in the hotel and started off washing dishes on the graveyard shift at Sheraton Sydney Airport Hotel. I felt that the food and beverage side of the operation was where I could excel in and uh, started my career in food and beverage in the hotels. And was it Sheraton that you stayed? Did you stay with that? Yeah, I stayed with the Sheraton group for seven or eight years and went to a different couple of properties. Went to Auckland and uh, I was lucky enough to go to uh, China and open up the Sheraton Suzhou Hotel and Towers in China in 1996. I stayed with them until 2000. So you're working up the F&B ladder, but then you're also progressively creating the businesses in other or, or um, opening up the businesses in other countries as well yes so <laughs> exciting times and, and by the time I left Sheraton I was across in room division so looking after uh, reservations the front desk reception concierge all those type of departments as well by the time I left Sheraton Auckland Hotel and so I had a very good understanding about customer service and creating experiences for customers and managing staff and I was able to take that uh, onto my next few hotels as well I left Auckland and uh, went to Indonesia. For two years, I was on a beautiful golf resort in Indonesia, managing the hotels and the rooms and the food and beverage brands. And then after Indonesia, went up into Beijing and opened up a beautiful big hotel right in the, in the heart of Beijing. Was there a, I guess, a defining moment where you thought, these guys are all established, I understand how to do things, I'd like to give business building a go myself? Yeah, I was, I was heading to that stage as I was leaving Beijing. I was, I was looking towards creating a higher level of customer experience. And I suppose I was getting slightly frustrated in the hotel industry where it was getting more cost cutting and processing and the actual love of delighting customers on a daily basis was kind of like evaporating. So there was an opportunity that came up to run a luxury lodge in New Zealand. And at that stage, the luxury lodge market was starting to boom and these are super luxury lodges two thousand dollars a night you know all your f&b included and just really focused on an experiential experience for each customer and had to be personalized to each customer and create this wonderful experience so i got the opportunity to run a, a super luxury lodge in new zealand for 12 months i kind of like felt that was the tipping point where I've, I've experienced enough in hotels and the luxury lodge that i understood what 
the market at all levels of the market actually required and needed and enjoyed. And I thought that was probably the time that I could probably go out and do something for myself. And was that the genesis of your baby in New Zealand? Yes, yeah? that's right. So yeah, hip, so, and that's Hip Group. Hip Group New Zealand. Yeah. yeah. So I, I started up Hip Group New Zealand, and simple premise of taking everything that I'd learnt in five star hotels and delivering that exceptional five star hotel, six star hotel experience to three dollar fifty coffee back then, and giving people fantastic service, well presented staff, eye contact, beautiful clean table experience, chilled cold water delivered to the table, fresh newspapers each day, nice ambiance good quality food and beverage at a reasonable price point and instead of just taking it like a transactional coffee and a croissant or a panini back then more like giving them a bit more of an experience in the food beverage design service environment it's so it's one thing when you're inside an established business and you get to you know work your way up because the systems and processes are in place but it is also quite another to start from pretty much an idea Mm. and wanting to do something entirely different what i'm really interested in is how did you make the start when you said, okay, I understand what to do, but you know, now I'm starting with just an idea. So what was the next step for you? I guess the next step is like anything now, it's like finding the right location, trying to find the right landlord, the right physical location that will enable you to create the experience and the and the product that you think would suit that location. That was hard trying to find that location because you didn't have any experience or understanding of the market. All you had was the ideas, as you said. So it was a big jump and a big investment. First of all, what kept you in New Zealand? So I, I really enjoyed my time at the Sheraton Auckland Hotel. There was a great group of leaders, managers there. I think New Zealand's a very special place. There's so much to do. There's so much nature. There's the quality of the food and beverage. The people are very laid back and very positive. So I guess after being up in Asia where I was quite cutthroat and busy and as far away from nature as possible, it was nice to get back to New Zealand, experience all that New Zealand can offer from a from a livability point of view, but also from a business point of view. There was a lot of opportunity back then. There were no disrespect to New Zealanders, but they were slightly behind the time back then from what I'd seen in Australia and around the world. So that kind of like gave me the impetus to think that a, a product of that standard would work in New Zealand and that the market was ready for that product. You're also quite happy to travel. You know, you were born and uh, and raised here, but you went to other countries and you were actually quite happy to sort of settle down and make your mark in, in a completely different country. Yeah. You're happy to do that. Yeah, I don't know where that comes from. Well, I'm not, not scared by moving from country to country, learning new cultures and new ways of doing business. It's, it's not easy. I guess it's quite rewarding and you keep on learning and experiencing new things. I think that was half the excitement from going to New Zealand in the first place, then traveling up into Asia. It's like uh, every country is different and operating each com- each country's got its challenges. But I mm. guess it's um, enjoyable to experience different cultures and doing business in different cultures. With the, with the establishment of your venture in New Zealand, how did you start that off? What was the location that you landed on? Uh, so the location was a very beautiful beach on the Auckland waterfront in a lovely suburb with the sun shining coming up over the water each morning and just a beautiful place to go to work. I had a great community there and good business Monday to Friday and great business on the weekend. So it was actually the, the, the location was um, called Koriamarama, about four or five k's along a beautiful Tamaki Drive into the Auckland CBD. Well, actually, one one of the things that I wanted to understand is, so with your first venture and it being such a beautiful location, what most people tend to 
experience is is the setting like you said the beautiful food the beautiful drink that comes out beautiful service so they come in they're delighted they have a great time and they leave but most people i would assume don't actually give it a second thought as to what's had to go into the back end to enable them to have such a good time and i guess that's probably one of the things that i'd like to understand yeah. more about so with, with this first venture you know what happens between the idea and opening up so i, I guess i had a vision about this um style of venture that was all about quality and design and food and beverage and trying to get that into motion. So I was, I was lucky enough to come across a architect slash set designer in New Zealand who was very good at creating sets for theatre and for movies and advertisements. And I wanted to set the stage for our customers to come in and enjoy this wonderful experience in design. And so we went through this process of putting how can we put maximum dollars into the, the areas that the customers would touch. And it was obviously the floor, the tables, the chairs out of the, the 500 odd thousand dollars in the budget for the refurb for that first venture we put a lot of money into those things and i remember chatting to the architect we're going through that chair selection and he was showing me 69 dollars chairs 79 dollars chairs 149 dollars chairs and they just weren't gelling with me and i was getting frustrated and you're always working on a time schedule here because of shipping costs uh, shipping times and opening times and rent and so we we're kind of like he threw in this chair that that he knew that we weren't going to go for but he just wanted to, to shut us up so we'd choose one of the cheaper chairs but I sat down and it from a design point of view from an aesthetic point of view it was the most beautiful chair that I'd sat on it was $450 and we needed 60 of them or something like that so 30 odd thousand dollars and sat yeah. in it looked at it time frame worked and I said Let, yep let's do it 30,000 bucks and he was like gobsmacked like who would spend $450 on a on a bloody chair for a cafe for $3.50 coffee so we did that and we used Corian throughout the whole um all the tabletops and all the bar tops and everything so it had a nice crisp clean look that was you know, super quality and so we created that experience beautiful cork tiles on, on the floor and just try to put the quality into everything that we did and we just knew that if we created a quality environment that the customers would return and spend the money so we'll get the payback for it as well and so you put money into everything that, that you can can touch and feel so everything that's quite tactile how do you mitigate the risk between making sure that that investment you know it, i mean they're they're very capital intensive mm. so mm. how do you make sure that you do get that sort of payback like was it just something that came out of experience it wasn't out of experience it was just a gut feel i knew that we'd have to work the business very hard to pay back and so what I mean working the business hard is like maximizing every dollar from a customer that's sitting down we talk about opening up their wallet as soon as they sit down so we try to get as much money in a nice subtle way not try to get as much money out of that particular person for each diner to create a great experience but also there was the service aspect of it to make sure that every customer had a fantastic service experience that they want to return would push the uh, the hours of opening a bit earlier, a bit later, and push the diners through and capture every single person that would walk by. And so it was hard slog for, for two years, but instantly the the market responded well to the, the product that we're trying to give them, which was slightly different to all the other cafes in, in town. I and mean, they were appreciative of it. We're basically full from week one or two and just kept on trading, which was great. How long would you say it takes between the initial idea to to understanding when the venture is becomes successful yeah so the opening life of a business is uh, shit scary when you open the doors because minimal people know about you and no matter how good your social media is and well not back then but now there is that very slow build up 
which is like one week, two weeks, two and a half, three weeks, where it's just like pittering in. And a lot of self-doubt goes through your mind is why aren't we busy earlier? Why aren't people coming back quicker? What have we done here? Is the product right? Is the price right? Is the service right? Is the design right? And so you have a lot of self-doubt in the first couple of weeks of opening any venture. And then you get to that level of business where you can see the numbers starting to come up in, you know, month two and three and get you get a bit of a, a, a groove on that you think you're actually on the right track, which gives you the power to keep moving and keep going. Mm. And so you get to about week 12 to 16 to 20 and you've kind of like got a good run on the boards and it, it's starting to go the way you want it to do. So the first three to four months of a business is very, very stressful. But once you get to that stage where you've got a, a good basis to work on, the first lot of pressure comes off. You know that you've got a product that works. The next pressure comes in maintaining that and growing it and getting through the summer winter variations and just making sure you're not in a honeymoon phase where people just use you once and never come back. So it's not until you get through a full 12 months of, of trading that you can really start to relax a touch and think that you've done the right job. First 12 to 18 months of any business, in my mind, you know, a lot of operators will think differently, but it's not. I don't relax and, and say, tick the box, well done, until we get through the first 12, 18 months. Do you make any adjustments or do you try and sort of stay the course and just go, no, look, we, we have to test this or <laughs> yeah, every day every day everything it's just like prices portion size service styles ambience music lighting heat every day you've got an you've got an idea where you start out but you, you're asset testing your thought process on a hourly daily basis all the way through so a lot of decisions get made a lot of this nobody has an understanding of when they when they walk in the amount of stress that goes into producing a, an excellent product it's next level sort of it's like the stress is good it's good stress it makes you want to perfect and get things perfect not only for the customers but for the team as well we've got to make sure that our processes and our our cultures 100 percent correct as well because there's no point having a, a restaurant or an f&b operation if you don't have a fantastic culture so we spend just as much time getting the culture right so and embedding that culture and that service cycle with the staff as well but yeah, if you, if you want a successful food and beverage product, or I think any business really, you've really got to put the effort into it in the, in the first you know, 6, 12, 18 months to make sure that you're happy with it. The, the culture or the team is around you and it is happy with it. Customers obviously happy with it and it's profitable. You touched on a really important point and that's uh, staff culture. It's actually something that I wouldn't mind just unpacking a little bit because especially in hospitality, the staffing arrangements can often be sort of quite transient. And so how do you make sure that you've got longevity in your in your team such that they stay and you can you can maintain that culture and what do you do to foster it i guess um i see the leader role in the food and beverage environment and definitely myself the way i focus is building the bloody thing and making sure it's fantastic from a customer point of view from a design and aesthetic and a product but just as important if not more important is focusing on the leaders of the organization to make sure that they've got the culture piece down pat and what we're trying to do is create experiences for our staff members every day not just our customers as well as much time as we focus on the product the ambience the, the physical product we focus on the staff the training the culture we sometimes talk about ourselves not being in the hospitality industry but being in the leadership industry we focus on what we can do for each individual staff member up the whole hierarchy chart not that we have hierarchy but no matter if you're a dishwasher or first day on the job in the hospitality area serving drinks 
or you're a, a seasoned veteran, we spend just as much time with you making sure that you've, you've, you've got the skills, the tools, the resources and the motivation to do the job, not just for one day, but for your full on 40, 45 hour plus shifts for the week, every moment that you're here. Um, I'm lucky enough to have worked on the floor and as a line person up the chain of command in the hotel days to know what good leadership is and what bad leadership is. So I'm lucky to have worked in some fantastic food and beverage environments on the floor that are busy, that are profitable, that have got great culture. And I've worked in just as many that aren't profitable, that aren't busy and have got a shit culture. So we just take those experiences about the good places and talk about how we can implement those into our culture here. And also we talk about the negative side of things and everyone in hospitality has got a negative experience in an environment or a business. So we just talk about those and about how we're going to not make that happen inside our environment. So just going back to New Zealand, you got the first you got the first one up and running and you obviously made it through the first 12 at in months and pretty pretty happy with it. What happened after that? So the first one was June 2004 and that was in Koei and then the next one didn't come round until October 2006. Obviously, always wanted to do another one, but there was no set business plan. I always knew that one wasn't going to excite me for the rest of my life, but also didn't want to take on anything else until I was through that 12, 18 month period that we're comfortable. And then there was another beautiful opportunity came up just up the road from Corrymarama in a beautiful suburb of Auckland called Parnell. And it was a business that we looked at and the existing owners wanted to exit the business. So we paid a lot of money for that business and then we decided to, to merge the two businesses together and run it as one operation and share staff and share commonality on menus and purchasing and we're able to achieve fantastic things in that business as well. And we actually had one customer called Graham Wall. He was a real estate, he was a man of many talents, Mr. Wall, but he had a site that thought would be perfect for us. Wonderful, Scott. It'd be great for you. You'd do wonderful for you. And that was a, a new build development in Richmond Road, Greylind. So we went and had a look at that site, uh, saw the potential and signed the lease. And that was our first new build from scratch in a new development. From scratch. From yeah. scratch, yeah. Was it an integrated building or was it as in like commercial yeah, tenancy? Yeah, a couple of commercial tenants out the back and below us. And um, But this is pretty much standalone at the front of the actual development facing onto Richmond Road. And um, so that was the first opportunity to do something with a very blank canvas and going through the DA process and getting a good architect and a good builder on board. A lot of self-doubt through that one. Because this would have been radically different from taking over existing buildings with, I guess, existing fit-outs. Yes, well, in yeah. business so you knew there was a certain amount of money coming through those businesses so that gave you a bit of faith but this was in a totally new development in a totally new part of Auckland that we hadn't penetrated our customer base was all on the, the east side of Auckland and this is on the the west side which is the cool and groovy part of Auckland and we we're slightly off of the beaten track so there was a lot of self-doubt after signing the lease and going through the construction stage and design stage and product generation stage and even I remember the first day that we opened it was like a Saturday and there was like no one walking the streets and I sat actually sat there like two weeks before we opened and looked at the amount of people walking down Richmond Road Great Inn and it was cold and wet and miserable it was winter in Auckland nobody was out and I had this thought there's tumbleweeds going down the street and I said how the hell are we going to get 350 people through this cafe on a Saturday Sunday it's just like oh what have I done and this was at the point where it was finished right oh, you're, you're, you're looking about, at yeah, opening yeah, up yeah yeah we're, 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 <laughs> we've got the staff training and we're, we're into it boots and all and so the first Saturday was like a, I think we did you know, maybe 50 or 70 people and it was just oh 
what have I done? All this money gone into the third venture and it's a dud. And How did you build out of that? Because it's obviously, it obviously didn't eventuate <laughs> no, like didn't that. <laughs> so, lucky enough, Sunday was similar, maybe just a touch better. Then Monday started to get a bit better. Tuesday, a bit better. Wednesday, a bit better. By Thursday, Friday morning, we got a bit of a vibe on. And then Saturday morning at nine o'clock, full waiting list out the door, extreme pressure on everybody being so full so early. Been a lot of a lot of learning out of that one, but yeah, uh, yeah. it's not too not too bad. And very painful week, but uh, it was, it, the business picked up very quickly, which was great. And yeah, we're very lucky for that business to travel at a very high level of trade for a very long time, which was great. And it was the neighborhood community type of thing that we tried to develop in the other two sites. We focused on that at that site and credit their experience and that culture with the staff and a high level of design and a high level of product. And we hopefully did a great job. And I think the figures and the, and the, and the business, the way it stood in that community stood the test of time for, for years to come, which is great. Just out of curiosity, so you've got three venues now. Were you focused on doing something different for each one of those? So there were entirely different menus, entirely different experiences. Why did you choose to do that? It seems quite basic now, but I, it was quite weird for us back then to think, but we wanted to obviously create a, a business that was the center of the community in, in every community that we operated on so everything from the staff the staff uniforms the staff style the food was targeted towards that local community and also we we're very anti-branded food and beverage businesses to achieve what we wanted to achieve with that community-centric thing we didn't think we could transpose a brand across the venue so we mm. kept everything very bespoke and targeted towards that local community which is obviously hard work with different branding and menus and staff to, uh, I think that's one of the key to the successes of the New Zealand business was that everything was very targeted to the local community that we operated in. You didn't necessarily understand that it was your group that was running these venues because they were all almost quite yeah quite different and separate. The clever and canny customers worked it out pretty quickly. They they saw there was some DNA through the menu formatting, the way we presented our drinks. By that stage Richmond Road were the first people to give complimentary sparkling water to every customer that sat down as just our little gift to the customers. And that was very well received. We had a, a nice slick looking uniform that was quite bright and, and white. So the staff always looked fresh and polished. And so when customers started to walk in, you could actually hear them. Oh, this is the same people that operate. Yeah, uh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. So I said, yep, that is well done. <laughs> <laughs> you worked it out. But we never went out and promoted it that way or did anything else that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Moving on. So as I was sort of putting this episode together, I, the phrases top restaurateur in, in New Zealand got written quite a lot in, in a lot of the articles about your group. And so I'm wondering, by the end of it, what did you build up Hip Group into? I don't know about top restaurateur. We had a lot of fun. Um, we had a very good group of guys and girls. We had, we had something like 80 in our leadership team, varying different degrees of leaderships, but they were very, very ensconced, long-term, loyal, understood yeah. the culture, understood the gig. And those 80 people, we managed to set up, I think it was close to 18 separate individual businesses with a bakery, a butchery, a dairy, a creamery. We had a, a full-time beekeeper, a full-time procurement farm manager, had a vineyard, glass houses, meat programs, 
And this is over a period of... Basically 12 years. When you look back on it, you think it takes the first one two years to get started yeah. and 12 to get 18 is phenomenal. Yeah, we were lucky to to come across development in Britomart and Peter Cooper and Jeremy Pretty, two very great developers, leaders, and they were starting out their precinct and they, for some unknown reason, wanted us to do something there. Um, so I was very grateful for that opportunity and we managed to do three sites very quickly, bang, bang, bang. So that gave us a lot more volume. Yeah, so that, that was kind of like the next little impetus of, of the group that that was our first CBD business and it gave us the volume to afford to go out and get the um, the bakery up and running to a larger scale and to the, to the farm and uh, the butchery and all that type of thing as well. So you've got all these elements, uh, you know, the butchery, the creamery, uh, farms. Was that to make sure that you could control, like, the quality that comes into your restaurants and be able to maintain? Yeah, I was very um, very anal about the product experience and very anal about the customer service. And, you know, I probably drove the staff a bit too hard sometimes delivering this level of customer service that I wanted from, like, a six-star hotel. But at the same time, I was very focused on providing our customers with the freshest best quality damn produce or food that i could get my hands on at a value at a good value proposition it was easy to buy in the highest quality beef or lamb and charge the highest quality price but i was very interested in getting something that was totally organic or grass-fed or designed by us and getting that onto the plate in the most economical way was actually burned a couple of times early on in that process with buying I remember the eggs we found out that we're buying as free-range eggs were actually not free-range eggs and we're paying a premium for it and that just grinded on me like nothing else. And same with the bacon, the free-range bacon we're buying, they're two of our biggest things and that kind of grinded on me and our bread supplier at the time was doing some shoddy things and I was spending too much time looking backwards at the business and trying to fix up issues or supply chain issues or quality issues instead of driving the business forward. And so that's when I had an epiphany after a trip to San Francisco. I remember still this day getting the, the guys and girls together in the living room and at our, one of our monthly catch-ups and saying, if we're going to do this growth spurt with the Brita Mart, then this is how we're going to do it. We've got to have an absolute focus on the quality of our fruit, vegetables, proteins and how are we going to get that quality in the business we came up with this master plan and yeah with the help of all the leaders and some some fantastic growers back then and people that wanted to do some exciting things we were actually able to achieve a, a great supply chain and the end result is something that's actually that ended up being quite accessible to a lot of people because you you mentioned at an economical rate so it meant that you're quite inclusive of of everybody i was lucky enough to have access or taste or try these this fantastic produce overseas so i just wanted to give new zealanders the opportunity to have uh, the same quality experience from their beautiful produce at a reasonable price point and celebrate it because new zealand's got some fantastic produce and i just could, could see lots of it going overseas and not ending up in the local market so i said why is that so that's we're lucky enough to be able to talk to some people and talk them around from not selling it overseas and leaving some just for us to to give to our customers on the local market which is which is great so we've spoken about the the business in new zealand and some of the insights into creating the venues i'd also like to understand how you've learned how to do all this so did you have some particular mentors and guidance that that you relied on through this journey you know up until this point that sort of allowed you to to understand what to do 
how to back yourself? Were there people that stood out in, in particular in your journey? I think there was lots of, close to a lot of customers that were very successful business people in their own minds. And so I, I took on their advice most of the time, I think, but I listened to all the advice and, and determined whether it was right for me as well. Just chatting to, to customers and hearing about what challenges they had in business and how they overcome their challenges in business. And I was seeing how I could relate that to put that into my business. And you know, I remember talking to one particular customer who decades earlier had imported fantastic textiles into New Zealand that were new to the market, but very expensive. And he was just so passionate about it. And that kind of like gave me the faith that New Zealanders would ex would pay for a premium product. We had a lot of people come through the doors and there was a lot of customers that loved what we, what we did. They were very generous in their time talking for five minutes or 10 minutes about things, what they've seen in the business and pointing things out to us. It's nice to have a customer base that you can actually relate to in that, in that regard. I can't probably go through and name all of the fantastic customers that gave me advice over the years, but there was you know, one customer, as soon as the GFC hit, we just opened Takapuna Beach Cafe, which was another new build straight after Richmond Road. And it was our biggest investment yet. It was well over a million dollars. The GFC clouds were, were on the horizon and you know, I think he might have thought I was looking a bit distressed one day. And he said, don't worry, Scott, the cream will always rise to the top. That's <laughs> good advice. Yeah, good advice. <laughs> GFC, we had 120-odd staff on the books at that stage and just opened Takapu in a beach cafe. So we had one point something million dollars in debt there. A bit nervous about that. Yeah, especially because, you know, hospitality can often be a, well, it's discretionary spending. Exactly. So you exactly. need to make sure that, you know. Exactly. <laughs> but I think what we learned at that stage was that um, a, a coffee each day wasn't discretionary. It's essential? Essential. <laughs> yeah, we'd, uh, hopefully we'd... Um, We'd manipulated the market enough to make sure that they could give up other things in life rather than their $4, $4.50 coffee. And we did that through experience, like making sure that I remember talking to the staff that there's going to be a lot of stressed people coming through. You've got to make sure that you're smiling, you're upbeat, you're positive, and you give the most fantastic experience and service for that $4.50 coffee to make it the highlight of people's days. This is the end of the first part of the episode. I'm sure you've got more than a hint of the exceptional service and the extraordinary focus on quality that Scott was building into Hip Group back in New Zealand. Coming up will be the second part of the conversation where we explore Scott's journey back to Australia and the genesis of Housemaid Hospitality. See you soon. <laughs>